I grew up in a town called Oxnard in Ventura County in Southern California. When I got to be a little older, I rode my bike to school most days. But in the early grades, I took a public city bus. When we moved to Oxnard, I was in second grade and class had been underway for about a month. The first day I went to school, I climbed on board the bus near our house and got to school just fine. But that afternoon, when I went to the city bus stop near my school, I discovered that there were three buses picking kids up. I don't remember how I chose which bus to get on, but as it turned out, my algorithm, whatever it was, wasn't very good. The bus started out filled up with kids, and as we wound through town, kids got off here and then there and then at other stops. After a while, as I stared out the windows, I grew increasingly concerned that I was nowhere near where I lived. The houses looked different. They were older, two-story houses, not newer, small, stucco, ranch-style houses like the one that we had just moved into. I became very nervous. Then several more blocks went by, and I noticed that I was the only kid left on the bus. That's when the true panic set in. It suddenly hit me that the bus was near the end of its route, and I was very, very far from home. I'd like to look at part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Now note that Matthew did not call it the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't even call it a sermon. It was simply a scene that took place on a hillside with a large crowd gathered around Jesus. This scene occurs near the beginning of Jesus' ministry and contains the longest of his sermons or verbal presentations recorded in the New Testament. The actual location isn't known. Tradition has it that the location was a large hill called Carnhattan, and there's now a church there that is called the Church of the Beatitudes. The reason for the name of this church is that part of this sermon is referred to as the Beatitudes. The word means blessedness, and each one begins with blessed are. One of them is blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. The Sermon on the Mount has had a very dramatic impact on Christian theology and doctrine, and it is fundamental to the Christian faith. St. Augustine called it a, quote, perfect standard of the Christian life. Here's a bit of the scene from the beginning of chapter 6 of Matthew. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth. 
They have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. In this passage, which occurs near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, there are people who are described as blowing trumpets to celebrate someone giving to charity. At this time, giving to the poor was considered an essential aspect of being a faithful Jew. By the time the Gospel of Matthew was written, Christians had picked up on this same practice. And the bit about trumpets is no metaphor. They really did this. People would blow trumpets to draw attention to particularly generous gifts. A subtlety is that the word that's translated to hypocrite in this passage is actually in the original Greek manuscripts, the word hypocrites, which does not mean hypocrite. It's a bad translation, as the word actually means actor. So what Jesus is saying here is that the people who give money to the poor and then blow trumpets to celebrate their gifts Well, they're acting. They are pretending to be generous people. The implication is that they are actually the opposite. They're selfish, and if they weren't getting attention for their acts, they certainly wouldn't be doing it. I'd like to look at another Bible passage, one that contains one of the most tender descriptions of Jesus in all of the Gospels. Here it is from the 10th chapter of Mark. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and he blessed them. In this passage, some kids have been brought to Jesus so that he could bless them. The disciples get upset about this, presumably because Jesus is an important guy and he has better things to do than mess with kids. But Jesus pulls these kids close to him and he declares, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Notice that this sounds backwards. It says that the kids can receive the kingdom of God, not that the kingdom of God will receive the kids. While the kingdom of God isn't some possession that someone can own, it is something that can be enjoyed almost as if we do own it, especially if we have the right attitude. That attitude is one of openness and willingness, which are attributes we associate with innocent children. We as adults should be equally innocent. Rather than seeing the kingdom of God as something we have a right to obtain, 
or that makes us better than other people. It's simply something that brings incredible joy into our lives. The story is actually more powerful than most readers of the Bible realize. Keep in mind that it is a modern Western notion that says we should view kids in a warm and romantic way. Back then in Jesus' society, kids weren't viewed as being fully human, and they were often kept away from adults. So Jesus is doing something radical here. He's saying that these little non-persons actually portray perfect examples of how we as adults should behave. We should embrace God the way these children embrace Jesus. Importantly, a handful of verses after this passage and during this same scene in which Jesus and his disciples are making the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to say to his 12 disciples this, We're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. We see that the Sermon on the Mount is an important point in Jesus' ministry. He's on his way to make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, where he rides into the city in a procession as people crowd along the path, laying palm branches down in front of him. This passage occurs as Jesus is busily laying out what he believes to be the most important aspects of being a person of genuine faith. His words say that we should be innocent in the way we embrace God. But he's also teaching via his actions. He's living a life of faith for us to observe. That example culminates in his ride into Jerusalem. He is everything that the religious leaders and the wealthy people of his society are not and the faithful come out in vast numbers to acknowledge this, and as a result, the government will soon want to kill him. Importantly, he's not riding high on a donkey to feel good about himself, because he knows he's going to die for it. And what do we see him doing in this scene? He's being extraordinarily good to children. Jesus is extremely kind to these kids whom society normally rates as being even lower than the poor people to whom our false givers in our first passage give donations. He pulls them toward him, and then he makes it clear that they're a fine example of how true believers should behave. Putting together... First, this second passage, and then the first passage that I read. One, we see an example of a great act of kindness, and two, we learn that the best acts of kindness are those for which we get no credit.
And that's how I got treated on that public bus. The driver was doing his job and not getting paid very much for it. As it turned out, when he got to the last stop, he turned around and he glanced at the back of his bus. There I was sitting alone, frozen scared. He told me that he was at the end of his route and that this was the end of his shift. He had no extra responsibility to me except to perhaps have the cops come and pick me up at the bus depot after he drove his bus back there. But instead he got up and he walked back to me. Wrong bus, he said to me with a warm smile. I nodded. There was no one to see what he was about to do. Nobody was going to play trumpets for him. He tousled my hair. It's okay, he said. Where do you live? I had my address memorized as my older sister had taught me, and I spat it out. He nodded. You are in the wrong place. You're pretty far from your home, son. Then he told me to go sit in the front row of the bus. He proceeded to drive me all the way home and drop me off right in front of my house. He didn't get out of the bus so my mother could acknowledge his kindness. He just grinned and wrote down the number of the correct bus home from school. He said, put that in your uniform pants there. That's the bus to take home tomorrow. Make sure the bus has that number on the front of it. I went inside my house and told my mother about my misadventure. She darted outside, but the bus had driven away. I've told this story about my errant bus trip many times. I have to say that after this, I was very careful to check the number of the bus before climbing aboard, and for several days after this incident, I watched the route the bus took and did not feel relaxed until I started to recognize my neighborhood. I don't know if that bus driver was a Christian. Back then, most people in my town would have attended a church or a synagogue somewhere. But whether he was any kind of believer or not, whether he was pious or thought that religion was the opiate of the masses, he showed me how to live the way Jesus taught us to live. The older man with the giant pot belly and the gray beard drove me home simply because he cared about a kid, simply because he didn't want that kid to be frightened. He had no other motivation. It is something that I've reflected upon hundreds and hundreds of times in my life. When I see someone in need, I think of that bus ride. Remember that a simple act that truly reflects the teachings of Jesus can have a profound impact on another person, especially a child.